Romans 9, 1 through 5. Did God hate Esau? Did God harden Pharaoh's heart so that he could not believe? Is God a potter who routinely rejects the majority of the human clay he created, rendering them lost and damned? These are all found in Romans chapter 9. Your first inclination, and it's a good one, is to say no. But then what are we to make of incredible statements like, Jacob have I loved, but Esau I have hated? Well, if you read chapters 9, 10, and 11 as the unit they are, you come to an important realization. Paul was writing about the plan and purposes of God for the nation of Israel in light of the fact that Jewish leaders had officially rejected Jesus Christ as their Messiah. What, if any, plan did God yet have for his specially chosen people? You know, the book of Acts ends uh, with Paul just basically saying, okay, that's it. The gospel is now going full on to the Gentiles, and you're left thinking, well, what about Israel? Have they been rejected? What plan did God have? Well, some will say none. God has no plan for Israel other than individual Jews can get saved just the same as Gentiles. If that's your working theory, if that's what you believe to be true, you're going to interpret these examples from the Old Testament to teach that God hated Esau as a person, that he hardened Pharaoh's heart so that he could not be saved, and that he routinely damns to hell much of the human clay he created. But it should be obvious that God does have a plan for the nation of Israel. It's obvious as you read God's word and take it literally, and it's obvious as you read the news and see what's happening in the world, especially in the Middle East around Jerusalem. Now, we don't develop theology from ABC News, uh, but you read the Bible like we, we do with our prophecy updates, and you think, huh, I wonder what's happening. You read the Bible, and you think, hey, you know, the Bible seems to indicate that the Jews are going to be drawn back to their land in the last days. There'll be a people again in unbelief, and that God's not really through with them. I wonder if that's true. I wonder if that's happening in the world. And then, then you turn on ABC News, or as we do here in the Central Valley, Fox News, and uh, you, uh, well, we want to be fair and balanced. <laughs> and so... You, uh, you find out that that's corroborated, and so it's fantastic. I have one book of theology. I couldn't find the reference, um, but it was written by a, a theologian who holds this theory that God has no particular plan for Israel, and he wrote uh, that, it, it, basically he said Israel will never even be a nation again. He wrote in 1947... And uh, what's funny is they haven't revised his book. I mean, you know, they still publish it. And so, oh well. The church at Rome was probably founded by Jews who had been saved while visiting Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. Some time had passed, obviously, since they'd begun sharing the gospel in Rome. The Jewish believers were perplexed and bewildered as they saw their own nation hardened into opposition against the gospel, while at the same time Gentiles were turning to the Lord in droves. They were aware that the prophets predicted a great work of God among the Gentiles, but they had always been accustomed to think of this as following the full restoration and blessing of Israel and flowing from it. In other words, they felt that the Messiah would come, he would establish his kingdom, and then the Gentile nations would flow into Jerusalem uh, and the world would be blessed. But this rejection of Jesus Christ by the Sanhedrin and the Jewish leadership, this, in a sense, threw a monkey wrench into Jewish thinking. Was God through with his people? 
all the prophecies on which they had based this expectation seemed to have failed. And so an explanation was required, and it had to be one from the Old Testament. It had to be a biblical explanation. Paul takes up the explanation in these three chapters. In them, he discusses in this order God's past, chapter 9, his present, chapter 10, and his future, chapter 11, dealings with the nation of Israel. His general assessment is this. It's quite simple. Israel was and remains God's specially chosen nation. Yet for a time, they've been set aside as God builds his church. And God will take up with them once again, once the church is complete. If you want to go on a rabbit trail, you would go to Daniel chapter 9 and study Daniel 70 weeks and find that in God's prophetic calendar, there's a break the church age during which God is doing a mysterious new thing that it, 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 no one really understood until uh, the rejection of Christ. He's building the church and then he'll pick up with the final seven year period that he promised Israel, the tribulation, to bring them back to their senses. And so this requires an explanation, a solidly biblical one, and Paul gives it in these chapters. As I hope to show you, it's not just a prophetic issue, as interesting as that is. How can I be secure in God's love and salvation when it seems that Israel was once loved and saved, but is now rejected? If that's true, what keeps God from also rejecting me one day? I mean, quite honestly, if God doesn't have to keep unconditional promises, you and I are in a lot of trouble. A lot of trouble. So we begin to look at Israel's past in chapter 9, or it might be more accurate, I think, to say that Paul draws from Israel's past to show the Roman believers, and obviously all believers, that God's present dealings with Israel are scriptural. The following are the stories Paul will utilize in this chapter, if you want to familiarize yourself with them. There's the story of Abraham and his children by Hagar and Sarah, Ishmael and Isaac. We're taking a good look at those on Sunday morning. There's the story of Isaac and Rebekah and of their two sons, Esau and Jacob. There's the story of Moses and Pharaoh. And there's the story of the potter and the clay, which is taken from Jeremiah chapters 18 and 19. And then we'll find quotes from prophets like Hosea and Isaiah. But before he gets into that whole argument, Paul has something to share about himself and about his love for his fellow countrymen. And he begins doing that in verse one where he says, I tell the truth in Christ, I'm not lying, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit. Now when Paul said he was telling the truth, not lying, it wasn't just a literary device to get their attention. His love and concern for Israel went to his very core. Though he took the gospel to Gentiles, he always started when he could in the local synagogue. When Paul would go into a city, he would find where the Jews were meeting. Uh, if there were enough Jews, 10 male Jews, they would have a synagogue, and he would go into the local synagogue, and as a traveling uh, you know, uh, individual, a, a Jewish rabbi, as it were, uh, he would be asked to deliver a message, and he would share Christ. You, you see the story in the book of Acts. It was only after Jews in a city rejected the gospel that he went outside the synagogue and began to preach to others. Conscience is that mental faculty 
by which we judge the rightness or wrongness of our thoughts and actions. Paul simply saying that he thought it was right that he should have such a great love for his countrymen. It wasn't merely his own conscience that guided him in his love for the Jews. It says here he was being influenced by the Holy Spirit. This was Paul's heart towards the Jews because it was God's heart towards the Jews. And so there's, uh, there's obvious in-your-face statements that Paul makes about God and the Jews. And then there's a lot of subtleties, a lot of layers to his writing here too, where he says, uh, basically, I love the Jews, and that's prompted by the Holy Spirit. And so God's heart isn't to reject or to abandon or to be done with the nation of Israel Uh, but to deal with them. It's just very interesting how he is dealing with them. So in verse two, he says, I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. Now, continual doesn't necessarily mean all the time. It can mean whenever he thought about the condition of Israel. And so he's not saying that every moment of every day he was in grief over Israel, but when he thought of Israel and their lost condition, he had this grief. Having said that, I think we need to understand that Paul probably thought about Israel a lot and and carried this grief with him. We think either or terms a lot. You know, either I'm happy or I'm sad or depressed. Either it's we're all in, you know, or we're or we're not. Poker and all these games have become more popular. When, when I used to, every Sunday, not that anyone cares about this but me, but every Sunday night, my brothers and my dad used to sit around the dining room table and play uh, poker. Uh, and if you didn't have enough chips, you were just done. There was none of this, I have $10, I'm all in, you have $5 million, you have to go all in, and whoever wins, wins. Why not just flip a coin? I mean, that's the, where's the skill in that? So anyway... Uh, we think like that, either or. We're either all in or we're not. And so uh, it, we look at Paul and we think, well, wait a minute, was he depressed all the time or not? And the truth is, he was both. He had the joy of the Lord while simultaneously having continual grief in his heart. And in his case, it was for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And so if I'm understanding this right, you and I should have continual grief in our hearts for the lost. At the same time that we're filled with joy, unspeakable and full of glory, that we give off and exude, uh, you know, this this kind of thing, uh, there needs to be a continual grief in our hearts. This also helps me to understand how Jesus Christ is described as a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, and yet he was the perfect, sinless, joyous son of God. Uh, He could be uh, filled with joy, so much so that children were attracted to him and and came to him and had no fear of him, and then he could turn around and weep over Jerusalem because he had come to them offering them salvation and the kingdom of God, and they had rejected him. And so uh, Paul says, whenever I think of a, a lost Jew, I have continual grief in my heart. How much did Paul love his countrymen? This is one of the most amazing statements, I think, in all the word of God. Verse three, I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh. 
Paul honestly said his conscience influenced by God the Holy Spirit, he would have forfeited his own salvation if that were possible for the salvation of his natural national people, the Jews. Do you understand? It doesn't sound like Paul is just talking about everybody here, lumping them out. Paul could easily have said, hey, you know, I love, I'm a Jew, but I don't think much about that anymore because God is through with the Jews and we just need to concentrate on getting everybody saved. He's really into what God wants to do among his people. His, and he says, look, I would rather not be saved. I would forfeit my own salvation if the Jews could be saved as a nation. Now let's just stop and say, wow, I would hope I could at least say I am willing to die in order that others might hear the gospel and be saved, or at least die to myself to help further the kingdom, or at least that I would live every moment for Christ so others would see his love for them. I mean, those are some alternatives to actually saying I would give up my salvation for somebody. I, I, are you ready to say that? I, I'm, that's something that's kind of beyond me. And so Paul says, this is my conscience, this is how I think, it's inspired by the Holy Spirit. It's who I am. If I could, I'd give up my salvation if it meant that the Jews could be saved. Paul was serious, but he was also, it's interesting, he's identifying with the most revered Old Testament character to the Jews. Moses had once made a similar plea to God asking to be blotted out of God's book of life if God didn't spare Israel. And so, if you're a Jew, you catch all these subtleties. We Gentiles, we don't. Uh, but a Jew would have understood, hey, I've heard this before. This sounds a lot like Moses. And so there's a hint in this comparison that Paul, in preaching the gospel to the Jews, was a spiritual deliverer to them. And just like with Moses, the Jews did not always respect or recognize what God was doing among them. <clears throat> now in a moment, it's actually in verse six, which we'll get to next time, Paul is going to launch into an argument where he says, they are not all Israel who are of Israel. It has led some to say that Paul's real focus in this chapter is on any person, Jew or Gentile, who gets saved. To them, it's a kind of disclaimer as if Paul was saying, but God isn't really dealing with Israel as a nation anymore, just individuals from every ethnicity because not all who are Israel are of Israel. But that's not true because in verses four and five, he clearly will establish that he's talking about national ethnic Israel. Of course, it remains true, as he says in verse six, that just being a Jew doesn't save you. But it doesn't follow from that that God is through dealing with the Jews. He's not. These chapters describe God's dealings with his chosen nation during a long period of their unbelief nationally. It doesn't mean individual Jews cannot or do not get saved, they do. But nationally, they are not a Christian nation. Romans 9.4 reads, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises. Now those are things that <clears throat> belong uniquely to the nation of Israel, to the descendants of Abraham. Adoption looks back to Exodus 4.22 where God told Moses to tell Pharaoh that he had chosen Israel as his firstborn son. The glory refers to the Shekinah, 
When the building of the tabernacle had been completed, this glory of the Lord came and it filled it. It took its stand above the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies. During the wilderness journeys, when it rested, the Israelites did not travel. When it was taken up, they marched. It was a cloud by day, giving them shade, and a pillar of light and fire by night, giving them warmth and light. When Solomon finished his very impressive prayer at the dedication of the temple, this glory filled that temple. It indicated the presence of the Lord with his people. The covenants refer to the ones God made, specifically with Abraham and David. The unconditional parts of them are that Abraham would be given a land, descendants as innumerable as the sand and the stars, and that the Savior who would come from him and his people would bless the entire human race uh, with the promise of redemption. David was unconditionally promised that the Savior would be a direct descendant of his and that his kingdom would be literally and physically established forever. The giving of the law is their rule of life was given to them, the Jews, not the Gentiles. Not true. In the past, if a Gentile was to approach God, he must convert to Judaism. Not true anymore. The church council, whose official minutes are recorded in Acts 15, established that Gentiles have no responsibility to put themselves under the law of Moses. And so this idea, the giving of the law, this, these are all statements that are only true of ethnic Israel. The service of God refers especially to the temple and its symbolic rituals. This is the Levitical service of the temple. It's not just you and I serving God. And finally, innumerable and unconditional promises about how God intended to bless Israel as an earthly people and how he intended to bless all earthly peoples through them. I know I got saved and started going immediately to a Calvary chapel because that was uh, the church that the guy who led me to Christ was going to, uh, and, and my heart was captivated by the simplicity of the worship and the word and all. But uh, I, I would like to think that just reading the Bible myself, I would have come to the conclusion that God really loves the nation of Israel, ethnic Jews, the descendants of Abraham. Uh, and I find it, quite honestly, and this is just me speaking, I find it anti-Semitic that people interpret the Bible as if there is no plan for Israel. And then they add as a footnote, well, Jews can still get saved. Individual Jews can get saved if they, you know, if they receive Christ, but there's, there's no real plan for the nation of Israel. I, I just don't know how you come to that conclusion. Verse five, of whom are the fathers and from whom according to the flesh Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God, amen. Yeah, Paul's gonna say, just because you're a Jew, you're not saved. You know, just because you're an American, you're not saved. Uh, same thing. He says, but these are, these are things that are unique to the nation of Israel, and I'm going to be talking about that is what Paul is establishing. These privileges that he just mentioned were intended to prepare them to receive their Savior, who was born a Jew, descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob through the particular line of David, according to the flesh. Quite honestly, I thought Jesus was British because he was British in all the television shows I'd ever seen growing up. I mean, it's just, it's fantastic the things you realize. You realize how stupid you are? I was, a, I was a Christian for a little while before it dawned on me that Jesus was Jewish. And, and uh, when, before I was a Christian, I'm, I'm pretty sure he wasn't British by then, but, you know, they're all, all the great 
Jesuses are, are, are British, but anyway, blonde, blue-eyed guys. Uh, he came through the children of Israel, especially through the particular line of David, according to the flesh, and flesh, obviously, in this context, simply means physical descent and lineage. By the way, this sentence structure is such that Jesus Christ is being called the eternally blessed God. It's always good to be reminded that the Bible presents one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Not three gods, nor do they exist one at a time, the Father becoming the Son and the Son sending the Spirit. God is three in one in a mystery that cannot be fathomed. Uh, and I've even given up trying to illustrate it because all the illustrations are, are no good. In fact, a lot of the illustrations are, are what are the modalistic heresy. Where you, people say, oh, it's like water. It's ice and then it's water and then it's steam. Yeah, but it's not all three at the same time co, you know, existing, do you understand? And so you, you, God doesn't change from one to the next. The three persons, one God, uh, no one understands it, but it's taught in the Bible. Now, Paul included this strong statement of nationality, of ethnicity, precisely so you could not make the error of thinking that in verse 6 he was dismissing God's dealings with Israel as his chosen nation. His argument isn't that God is through with the Jews, but that he has temporarily set them aside. And he's going to prove from the Old Testament that what God is doing with Israel is scriptural that it was anticipated in their history. For example, setting aside the, the, uh, the firstborn in favor of the secondborn. Something unheard of, and yet that's what happens with Jacob and Esau. And Paul will say, in that same way that you see it in your Jewish history, guys, God has set aside the nation of Israel, his firstborn, in favor of the Gentiles for a time, and they are receiving the blessings of the birthright. And so he makes these fantastic arguments from the Old Testament. They are examples of God's dealing with Israel. They're not standalone statements uh, teaching the sal about salvation, individual salvation. We'll see more about that as we go on. He's building up to be able to say this. I love Romans 11, 1 and 2. I know obviously way ahead, but this should solve it for almost anybody. I say then, has God cast away his people? Who's he talking about? I am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. The plain reading of that is that Paul is saying, I am an ethnic Jew, and I'm telling you under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that God has not rejected and cast away his ethnic people whom he foreknew. God has a plan for them, uh, and that plan is very simple. Uh, they rejected the Lord, and so they're being disciplined until the church age is over, and then God is going to begin dealing with them again through the seven-year tribulation. And as you read through the book of the Revelation, you find out that, that at the end of that period of time, every living Jew is a Christian. They've come to Christ and they receive their Messiah. So, pretty simple. Uh, Paul goes to great lengths to let you know he's talking about the physical descendants of Abraham. Now, our approach to Israel is part of a larger understanding of God's relationship to human history that is called dispensationalism uh, or dispensational theology. 
it's a framework for understanding the Bible. It teaches that God has dealt with man historically in different administrations or dispensations. It maintains a radical distinction between Israel and the church that there are two peoples of God with two distinct destinies and it distinguishes between the rapture and the second coming of Christ. One precedes the other by seven years of tribulation. So that's, that's where we come from. We get there from reading the scripture literally and taking it uh, you know, as it comes. And we've decided from reading the scripture that there's a, a distinct plan for the nation of Israel, a separate plan for the church, uh, and that it involves uh, the, the, literally the rapture and resurrection of the church, a seven-year tribulation, and then the second coming of Christ. Dr. Charles Ryrie says this. He says, the essence of dispensationalism is the distinction between Israel and the church. This grows out of the dispensationalist consistent employment of normal or plain or historical grammatical interpretation, and it reflects an understanding of the basic purpose of God and all his dealings with mankind as that of glorifying himself through salvation. And so that's the deal on a doctrinal level. On a more devotional level, on a personal level, the bottom line is what I stated earlier. If God can make certain unconditional promises to the physical descendants of Abraham that he breaks, then how can I trust in the promises that he has made me? I suppose the argument is that God never really made these promises to the Jews. He just made them. And the Jews happened to be the people he made them to. But... Uh, people talk about the, you'll be reading a book sometimes, you read commentaries, sometimes you'll encounter this phrase, the church in the Old Testament. And you, you scratch your head and you think, where was that? And what they mean is the nation of Israel. And so they just, they just kind of erase the idea that there even was a nation of Israel. It's just, there's just believers in the Old Testament, believers in the New Testament. Whatever God said to the believers in the Old Testament applies to the believers in the New Testament. There are no unique, specific promises to any ethnic people, the Jews. And that's just not true. That's just ridiculously false. And Paul is going to establish that. God cannot break his unconditional promises, and so Paul gives us an accounting of what God is, in fact, doing with Israel during the dispensation we are now in, which we like to call the church age. And so I, I for one, am greatly heartened by God's faithfulness to his people. Even in the hardness of their heart and in their disbelief, God has not, as Paul said, cast them aside but is dealing with them. Disciplining them, yes, but dealing with them in a wonderful way. Uh, and, and so uh, that's where we're headed. We'll deal with some of these difficult scriptures. Uh, does God really hate Esau? You know, things like that. And what we're, what, the, the answer to all of that, whether it's Esau or Jacob and uh, his brother uh, or Pharaoh or especially you get into the potter and the clay, the answer to all of that is always to go back to the context of where those verses come from. For example, Jeremiah, potter in the clay. A lot of people make a big deal about the fact that, you know, God hardens the clay. Uh, and so whom he softens, he softens. Whom he hardens, he hardens. It's, ar in a sense, arbitrary. Uh, and they interpret that as meaning that some people are predestined to salvation, others are predestined to damnation, that's just the way it is. If you go back and read it in the text of Jeremiah, 
Yeah, it says that. And then it goes on to say to Israel, if you will repent and soften your hearts, then I'll work with you again. And so uh, it's mind-blowing. So, you know, just read the text in its context, understand it, and it all comes together. And by the time we're done with Romans 9, 10, and 11, you'll know what you already know, and that is that God is not through with Israel, uh, but has a wonderful plan for them that, is, that we are watching unfold in our generation. Uh, you know, uh, the, the rebirth of Israel, 1948, all the fantastic prophetic things that are happening in our day and age, we're the generation that is seeing these things uh, literally fulfilled. I, I sort of give a pass to earlier churches and theologians, people in the 1600s, 1700s, it, it was a big, I mean, I think <coughs> there were people who still believed it, but it was a big jump to say Israel was gonna be a nation and all these things were literal. Um, not so much anymore, right? I mean, it's, it's, to me, it's a leap of faith to say, ah, you know, the Jews, God doesn't have anything special going on with them. Absolutely, he does.